0: Let's open in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for fulfilling your word and the promises that you have in it. Thinking of Psalm 67 that was read by Lacey, we thank you that you have made yourself known among the nations, that many peoples from many lands around the world have come to know you and praise you. We thank you that you continue to do that work both abroad as well as uh, drawing your own people to yourself. And so, Father, as we look at your word, as we we begin looking at the book of Colossians, I pray that you would remind us of what it means to be a Christian. Remind us of what it means that Christ laid down his life for us. Remind us of what you have called us to and why. Father, all of these questions uh, are, are raised and And uh, we want to be a people who grow in our knowledge, but in such a way, Father, that it brings glory to your Son. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that today. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. I pray, Father, that that your work of the Spirit uh, would be in each of us as I preach, as we listen that you would speak the very words that you have for us today, that we might hear them. So Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. And I pray, Father, that Christ would be made much of, that he would be glorified in our time. Help our lives reflect the gracious and glorious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. So to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we begin a new series as we go through the book of Colossians, and the the overall title for the series is A Community in Christ, and uh, the the first section that we're looking at today uh, is titled Graciously Transformed, so Community in Christ Graciously Transformed. And as we begin, I want to give us an overview of the whole book of Colossians, but before I do that, I want to talk about how there came to be a church in Colossae. And so I'm going to take some of this from the book of Acts, and I'm going to take some of it from the book of Colossians, and I'm going to take a little bit from my imagination. But hopefully uh, you'll be able to see where I connected the dots. But from our understanding uh, of of history, uh, the Apostle Paul arrived in Ephesus somewhere around AD 53. We read in Acts 19, verse 8, that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some stubbornly uh, continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, meaning evil of Christianity, before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took, there were 12 disciples with him at that point uh, that were in Ephesus, and he took them and they went over to uh, the hall of Tyrannus, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And the text goes on to tell us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. People were healed, demons were cast out, uh, those who had previously practiced magic arts got together and they burned all their books, even record how much uh, that amount of those books cost. And then in Acts nineteen twenty. It tells us that the the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so we can imagine that among all of the word going out uh, to Asia from that one city, there might have been a man, and probably was a man, uh, from the city of Colossae named Epaphras. We don't know very much about Epaphras, uh, apart from the fact that he became a Christian and then brought the message of the gospel back to his home city of Colossae. It was through Epaphras that the gospel was proclaimed and that many of the Colossians heard and understood and believed the gospel for themselves. Well, fast forward from that time, from AD 52 to a few years down the way, Paul is in probably a Roman prison. And here he is then connected once again with Epaphras. From the text, Epaphras is either a visitor which would be a nice thought, or if we take uh, the verse from uh, Philemon, verse 23, suggests that he may have actually been a prisoner with Paul. Uh, But either way, uh, the two are reconnected, and Epaphras tells uh, Paul everything that has happened in the city of Colossae, gives them reports on what's going on. And what we know about uh, their time together that he shared with Paul what was happening what we know really is the outcome of the book of Colossians. Because Paul had actually never made it to the city, uh, but he responds to the news that he's heard uh, in this letter of Colossians that we have. And as we look at the letter itself, so that's, that's how the church came to be. As we look at the letter, and I just want to give a very brief overview. One of the things you'll notice as we read through it is that it is e- extremely Christ-centered. It seems that Paul wanted to help establish and ground the faith of these relatively new believers. And he wanted everything in relation to Christ. He wanted them to understand their faith and their lives and their eternal security, their sanctification, all in relationship to their Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul also wanted to equip the Colossian believers uh, to help them defend against a fairly destructive form of teaching that they were facing. We know that there was false teaching We just don't really know what it was based on the letter. So Paul opens with an overflow of praise and thanksgiving for all that God has done. And that's going to be really the text that we look at this morning. But that that, uh, thanksgiving and praise uh, will will carry throughout the whole letter. Later in chapter 1, Paul will highlight uh, the supremacy of Christ over all things. Once again, raising Christ up. And Paul assures them that As a minister of Christ himself, he is committed to ministering to them. And then we move into chapter two. Paul encourages the believers that just as they had received Christ Jesus, they should continue to walk in him. He then moves on to warn against this false teaching. And he says in chapter two, eight, he says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. He goes on, He, he wants to warn them against this teaching. And then he encourages them and don't submit to their, uh, their judgments, the judgments of these false teachers. So don't, don't believe what they say. Don't, don't submit to their judgments. 2.16, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in regards to false understanding of righteousness, and legalism. Instead, in 3.1, uh, Paul says that because the Colossians have been raised with Christ, they should seek the things above where Christ is. And then really the second half of the book Paul deals with what it means for them to live with Christ as the very center of their lives. And, and so 317 uh, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ giving thanks to God. And so he then lays out what that means in regards to their conduct in regards to, in regards to their relationships in their work and in their prayers. So that, Having thought of that quick overview of what Paul addresses in the letter, we know that he wanted them to know and live their lives in light of the truths of the gospel. He wanted to help them to share, he wanted to help shape their worldview as Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? Christians, they were Christians who were living in a society where Jesus Christ was not honored as Savior and King. And and I think that's why this letter is so relevant even for us today. What's true about the Colossians is really true of us. Every believer, in fact, who who has uh, come before or will come after us. And that is that God God did, uh, God had done uh, something radically transformative in the lives of these believers so looking at our text this morning, looking at verse 13, uh, so I would encourage you to open up your Bible to Colossians 1:13. Paul writes that God had delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of their beloved son. So he begins uh, with their salvation. There is a, a radical spiritual change that, that takes place in, in anyone when they become a Christian. When we think about you know testimonies. Uh, you know sometimes they're they're pretty dramatic, right? We can see that somebody's life has changed when they become a Christian, especially if they were really sinful beforehand, right? And they're nice and dramatic. Like think about the Apostle Paul, for instance, right? Paul, uh, his name was Saul at the time, but uh, he was going around trying to kill Christians, trying to destroy the church, trying to snuff out this thing called Christianity. He was seeking to persecute, imprison, and and kill Christians until one day on his way to Damascus, the Lord blinded him. He saw Jesus himself. He appeared in a vision to Paul and Paul was saved and his life was radically transformed. Instead of of persecuting Christians, Paul then spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel and, and planting churches. So his, his testimony, radical transformation, right? Anyone could see it who, who met Paul, who knew him before and after. But from a spiritual standpoint, the radical spiritual transformation that happened in the lives of the Colossian Christians was just as dramatic as it was when Paul was saved. In fact, it's just as radical in the life of a young child who grows up in the church and becomes a Christian Christian. At a young age. And the reason is because the gospel is not about what we do. It's not about how much we change. The gospel is about what Christ has done. And the drama of the gospel is not in how much we change our behavior, but the radical change of spiritual standing that God brings about in the life of the believer when we come to Christ. And so that's why in the beginning of the letter, Paul begins by affirming and giving thanks for God's gracious work of the gospel in them. And in the text that we're looking at this morning, we will see that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God graciously brings two transforming realities to believers, to the believers. So through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God graciously first gives fruitful hope to all who believe. So fruitful hope to all who believe. So Paul begins the letter with what may be, probably we might think of as a fairly familiar greeting. And it's kind of easy for us to just kind of skip over verses 1 and 2 as, oh yeah, Paul does this at the beginning of all his letters. But I want you to imagine just for a moment what it must have been like to listen to Paul's opening words, what they sounded like to the Colossian believers as the letter was first read to them. So, listen how, once again, Paul frames the very beginning of the letter. On, he frames it uh, in regards to Jesus Christ. He says, Paul, an apostle, or, or one who has been sent of Jesus Christ, so literally one who's sent from Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, he, he begins by addressing him, who he is, right, as an apostle. And he sent or writing by the will of God. Paul wants them to know that, that his words for them in this letter are God's words for them. This was a letter coming from the very apostle himself. Right? Imagine, these guys would have known who he was. Right? Because Epaphras, I'm sure in sharing his own testimony, would tell the story of how he first heard Paul preach the gospel. And how it had radically changed his own life. Paul was really their spiritual grandfather, and now he writes to them. And how does he address them? He addresses them as the saints or the holy ones, set-apart ones, and the faithful brothers in Christ. Paul never addresses these believers as second-rate Christians because he doesn't see them as second-rate Christians. God has done a decisive work in the lives of these believers and so they've been made holy. They've been set apart by God. They're considered saints. And the grace and peace from God the Father is displayed through the gift of the gospel, given in grace that brings peace both to God and man. And so that's the opening that Paul gives in the first two verses. And then he turns to this really prayer of thanksgiving, which will then at the end be followed by a prayer for their sanctification. So a prayer of thanksgiving for their salvation, the first part. Um, He frames, once again, thinking about Jesus Christ. He says, we thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even the Father is framed in his relationship to Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus, and for the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope that, that is laid up for you in heaven. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God graciously gives hope to all who believe, right? A transforming hope. And so, what's the hope? Think about what what is the hope of the believer, right? It's hope of eternal life. It's hope that our sins are truly forgiven because they've been paid for on the cross. It's it's hope that Christ has brought us reconciliation and peace with God. It's hope that is held and protected securely in heaven. By God Himself. Right? It's a hope that is the foundation of the spiritual of, of the believer's life. It fuels our faith in Christ and it motivates our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's what Paul points to really as evidence that the faith of the Colossian believers was genuine. And I think the reason why he does this here is is that he wants to set the stage for the rest of the the letter as well as a defense against the false teaching. Because from what we can tell of the false teaching, they were trying to undermine the belief of the Colossians, saying that they needed something in addition to Christ. We'll talk more about that in, in coming weeks. So Paul points uh, to the faith, their faith, as genuine. And, and he does it because the hope that comes from the gospel, he sees it as, as evidence, as assurance of their faith, because the hope that comes from the gospel will always bear spiritual fruit in the life of the believer. It, it always will. If you are a Christian, then it will bear fruit in your life. And the reason, again, once again, is, is because it's a work of God. It doesn't originate with us and it isn't something that we can manufacture. Right? People don't save themselves, but God has mercy on them. The spiritual fruit of, of hope, faith, and love in the life of the believer is evidence of God's genuine work of salvation. And it provides us with the assurance that our hope in heaven is not simply based on a wish. Right? When we say that the hope of the believer, it, Sometimes we use the word hope to mean a wish, right? I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. Or my son is probably thinking, I hope it does rain this afternoon so I don't have to mow the lawn, right? That's just a wish, right? That's just something that you kind of want to happen, but no necessarily. uh, It's just based on your desire. But biblical hope and the hope of the believer is a certain expectation of a coming good. It's based in God himself, and, and it's a certainty, of something that will come. And so the, the fact that our hope is based in God, it means that our hope is not contingent upon our ability to keep up our outward moral behavior, but our hope rests solidly on Christ's finished work on the cross. And so Paul begins by, by telling them, by, by trying to assure them that their faith is real because it's producing uh, the hope that produces faith. And I think the reason that Paul uh, wants to remind them he didn't want them to lose heart. He, didn't, he knew the pressures of their lives because he'd heard them from Epaphr- uh, Epaphras, um, and he wanted to protect them from uh, feeling like they needed something in addition to Christ. And I think we can tend to fall into a, that similar, I don't know, false... Uh, False belief that, that we need to believe something in addition to Christ. To, to be a believer, like, uh, like the false teachers were, were saying, we can sometimes fall victim to believing that we need to believe or, or follow certain rules or live a certain way in order to show that, that we're genuine Christians. So, right, as a Christian, right, you might think, uh, I, I think we're constantly confronted by those types of messages. Like, if I don't do A, B, and C, then I must not really be a Christian. Or if so-and-so, this other person, if they're not living according to A, B, and C, they must not be a Christian. But Paul wants to erase all of those, those dangerous ideas that take our eyes off of Christ and place them on ourselves and what we do. So we have to remember that the gospel is God's idea. He doesn't need anything added to it. place he read from Genesis That when God called Abraham, he promised Abraham that he would multiply his offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands that are on the seashore. He would be Abraham and his descendants God and and they would be his people. And in the story that that Lacey read, God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. But what happened? What happened was that First, Abraham was willing to do it. I think that's amazing that Abraham was willing to do it. But why was he willing to do it? Well, Abraham had been called by God to sacrifice Isaac. And the only reason for his sacrifice was to pay for sins. Abraham knew that he was sinful. And for whatever reason, God had said that that he should sacrifice his son Isaac. Then As the story was read, we see what God did. God didn't make him kill his son. Instead, God provided a lamb to serve as a sacrifice. The lamb saved Isaac, but really the lamb also saved Abraham by dying in in their place, atoning for their sins. We know that Jesus right, is that, that ultimate fulfillment. He is the perfect lamb that God provided. And in God's promise to Abraham... Wasn't just to cover these sins, but to, the, to fulfill the last part of the promise, which was that he would multiply and be a blessing to the nations. And it was only through Christ that Abraham's promise could be fulfilled. That through the cross, God opened a way to fulfill the last part of the promise to Abraham. Verse 18 said, right, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so this was the gospel that the Colossians heard and understood and believed, right? that there would be freedom uh, from sin, that there would be life in Christ. And so Paul then goes on and he says, of this you've heard, uh, this gospel that you've heard before, and the word of truth, the gospel, which has, been, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. As a church, we don't ever want to stop talking about the gospel. I don't, as a Christian, I don't ever want to assume that everyone in our congregation has heard and understood and believes the gospel, For one reason, we know that there are are unbelievers among us. But there are other reasons, right? We we know that it's because God uses the message of the gospel to save sinners. And so we want to, to preach it clearly, to radically transfer them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It's a message that's heard and understood and believed. And so we want to do all that we can to proclaim it and make it as clear as possible and easy to understand in the hopes that God will use our proclamation of the gospel to, to save others, to save more people. The gospel that saved Epaphras, right, he took it home with him to Colossae, and others were saved. He was a faithful minister, and it was a fruit that was being produced in the life of those individual believers. It, it brought forth faith and hope and love but it also went out among them and, and beyond them, even to surrounding cities, as Paul points out. And so we think about that. What, what about the gospel? Imagine for a moment what would have happened in the early church if, if everyone who heard the gospel and believed never shared it with anybody else, right? If all those who heard were simply content to listen to the message and be encouraged, right, be saved, but no one ever shared it with anybody else, what would have happened was that within a generation, the church would have died out, wouldn't it? Once the apostles died, there'd be no one left to carry on the message. But God didn't. God wouldn't allow that to happen. So we praise God for, for people like Epaphras who shared the good news with family, with friends and neighbors. And then through that, how the gospel continued to spread in Colossae and really, if you think about it, we're, in, we're inheritors of that same gospel, of that same spiritual multiplication. And so I would encourage us, as, brother, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to consider who is in your own life that you can share the gospel with. Because we know that the gospel is what, what changes, what transforms, right? It's not your persuasion, it's not your eloquence, but God is the one who does the work of the gospel. And so for the, these Colossian believers, I think Paul lays out the fact that, that the fact that they believe, the fact that there is some fruit in their life, that faith, love, hope points to, points to the fact that their faith is genuine. And if it's in you, know, my brothers and sisters, that it too is genuine. And that leads us to the second point: that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God graciously gives. Fruitful growth to those who believe. So first it was fruitful hope, and now it's fruitful growth to those who believe. The Christian life is not a stagnant life. Right? If you're a Christian, it should be your expectation that God will grow you in your faith. And Paul earnestly prays toward that end for these Colossian believers. I'm going to read, looking at verse 9, he says, and so from the day that we heard We've not ceased to pray for you. And so we ask, what is it that Paul prayed for? He's asking that, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what does Paul pray for these believers, right? He knows they're saved. He's been praying for them, thanking God for their salvation, and now he prays for their growth. And the first thing that Paul prays for is that they would grow in knowledge. Knowledge of God's will and all spiritual uh, wisdom and understanding. And so when we think about what Paul is saying here, he's saying that the first step, at least according to this verse, first step of spiritual growth and maturity in Christ is knowledge that results in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Right? Head knowledge isn't, isn't the end goal, but, but knowledge is there. It's, it's something that Paul is praying for them, but a knowledge that is lived out in their lives. And then it's interesting. He says that the, the, the knowledge is needed to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God. And so I think that should cause us to pause. It causes me to pause. What does it mean? What does it mean uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Right? Does, that mean, does that mean I'm perfect? Does that mean I'm without sin? No, I think it means that, that we walk with Christ as our Lord doesn't mean that we are without sin. It, never, it doesn't mean that we never make mistakes. It, it means trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. Trusting his provision of grace. Trusting his direction for our lives. Trusting his teaching and instruction. Trusting in his love. The same love that, that brought us salvation is the same one that keeps us and, and guides us. It means lamenting with our sorrows rather than grumbling about them. It's how we live our lives in a way that's fully pleasing to God. We think, well, what does it mean to be pleasing to God? I, I could never live a life that's pleasing to God. And so I want you to imagine, just for a moment, uh, you know, you've got, let's say you have a four-year-old child and you ask your child to clean up their room. They're gone for a little while. Maybe 20, 30 minutes have passed, and then they run back to you excitedly. And, and, show, and they say they want to show you everything they've done, and they, they proudly lead you back to their room. They open the door, and you look around, and you see, well, you see the bed, right? The covers, the covers are pulled up, but they're pretty wrinkly. They're pulled up. The Legos are kind of shoved into the corner. A few papers are kind of sticking out from under the bed. The trash can is slightly overflowing. And then, then you can see where they spent most of their time. Because every single one of their stuffed animals is lined up perfectly at the head of the bed. Perfect scene. Action figures are there as well. There's a battle that's been going on, and it's all captured. And they say, Look what I did. And so, what do you do as a parent? What do you do as a parent? Well, you could point out everything that, that isn't put away. You could you could point out all the flaws in the room. Well, you could say, boy, you know, you didn't dust the windowsill, there's dust up there, you didn't shampoo the carpet. Well, what's going on here? <laughs> you spent all your time on these stuff. No, no, no. You wouldn't do that. Well, hopefully you wouldn't do that, right? But for some of us, I think that's how we think God is going to respond to us and what we do in our lives. We think that God is going to look at us like the angry parent and say, look what you didn't do here and didn't do here and didn't do here. But here Paul says, to live our lives in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, it means living with Christ as the Lord, delighting in him as our heavenly father, as our brother, or Christ as our brother, as God as our father. You see, Paul lays out the aspects of what it looks like to grow in spiritual knowledge so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And the first thing he points out is that our work is fruitful. What's he say? Uh, he says in verse 10, right, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He say, does he say doing everything with perfection? No, just bearing fruit in every good work. It doesn't have to be perfect fruit, but there's fruit there. So we know that as believers, we're saved by grace through faith. The free grace uh, is meant to overflow into good works that God's prepared beforehand that we should do. We know that from Ephesians. But it is the image of Christ being the vine and us being the branches in John 15, 18, he says, by this that the Father's glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What's he saying? He said, if you're attached, if you're, if you're attached to the vine, you're gonna produce fruit. Right? It may not look like the fruit that you imagine. It may not look like the fruit of the people around you, but you'll produce fruit. And that fruit, uh, maybe it's small maybe it's just a display of stuffed animals. But if it's done with a heart of faith uh, toward God, I believe that that is what's pleasing to God. It's fruitful and and it's what? It's growing in knowledge of God. Because the more that we obey God, the more that we seek to please him, the more we know of him. Whether it's learning more about him in the scriptures and delighting more in who he is, or in prayer, being engaged with Him and, and knowing Him. It's interesting that, that here that Paul uh, asked that God ask God that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and then in turn leads to a life that's fully pleasing to God, right? And and then to greater knowledge, right? So do you see, starts with knowledge, and ends with knowledge, right? it's, but it's not it's not really this way. It's it's more like this way. It's a cycle of growth. It's the cycle of growing as a Christian. And so as they're strengthened, uh, as they grow in knowledge, as they produce fruit, Paul points to the fact that this is all done according to his glorious might. Why? For all endurance. Why endurance? Because the Christian life is hard. And because growth is slow. And so as we grow as Christians, we should pray that God would help us to persevere in faith, persevere in growth. He says, for all endurance and patience with joy. Right? Because we want everything like now, right? And if it's not now, we might just pass it by. But think about all that God might be doing in the midst of the waiting. All that God might be doing in the midst of the time it takes for something to be accomplished. All that it might take for uh, the fruit to actually appear to us. Can we endure with joy, trusting that God is the one who is producing the growth? Or do we need it now? I, I think about, I don't even want to say the name of the company, right? There was a company, right, who I remember hearing about them, I think it was in grad school, and uh, this company, you could like order stuff online and they would send it to you like in a week. You're telling me I don't have to go to the bookstore and order it and then a month later my book comes? Well, and then if you paid more, or it, they'd send it to you in two days. Two days? And, and then they increased it to one day. And then I think somewhere during the pandemic, things slowed down. And the two-day shipping turned into like four-day shipping. And I remember at one point going, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) We aren't patient as people. But part of being pleasing to the Lord is, is trusting him and his timing with joy. And then in verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So Paul then brings it all the way back around and says, you know why, you know why you get to grow in Christ? Is because what Christ has done has qualified you. Not, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. And then he goes back to what we started with, right? He says, and actually, if you look closely at the word, he he says, he has delivered not you from the domain of darkness. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Paul includes himself, right? Everyone who comes to Christ, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we're trusting in Christ, but not just for salvation, but also for sanctification. A sanctification that will last our whole lifetime. But it also means that we're placed into a community of believers, right? That us matters, right? That we're brothers and sisters in this journey. We're united because of what Christ has done. And so as we look through the book of Colossians, as, and next week will be a glorious look at who Christ is, I hope what we will begin to see that there is nothing greater that can unite us as a church than the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything else that, that we have in common just really pales by comparison. Once again, I think that is why Paul begins here. Because he wants the Colossian believers to look at one another and realize they matter to God because Christ died for them. And I think if if nothing else we would walk away from this morning, then that is, brothers and sisters, you matter to God. It doesn't matter, right, that we don't have an apostle coming to visit us here in Janesville. It doesn't matter that we don't have a senior pastor right now. We matter to God because what Christ has done, because of the work of the Spirit that is in among us, that is uniting us and making us a church. We don't have to feel like second-class Christians or second-class people. God has done a decisive work in us, a decisive work that will bear fruit in our lives and, and faith and love and hope and one that he will continue as he sanctifies us for the rest of our lives. If you are a believer, don't think you can sit on your laurels Don't think you can just sit around going, well, I'm a Christian. I can just sit around and not do anything. Expect that God is and will be working in you. And it's for the glory of his son because it it proves whose we are. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God graciously gives us fruitful hope to all who believe and transforming knowledge of himself to those who believe. So fruitful hope, to those who believe and fruitful growth to those who believe. I changed my last point and I forgot to change it in my manuscript. So that's what that's what it's supposed to be. And we're gonna end there. Let me let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the the, the fact that you, you you sent Jesus Christ to save sinners, that we might be radically transformed. And that in being transformed, that we would be made new. That we would be fruitful because we are connected to you. Father, I pray that we would never grow tired of the glories of the gospel. But remind us, Father, of your love for us and your commitment to us. Remind us, Father, that no matter what we are going through, our hope is in heaven and it's, it's held secure because you hold on to it. And so, Father, I, I pray that as we leave here today, as we, as we go, as we leave, uh, as we talk after church and as, as we leave uh, even church today and go about our week, that that reminder of who you have made us to be and what you've called us to, that you would remind us of the very Christ-centeredness of all our lives because we have been redeemed and, and that we would be willing to do like Epaphras did, to share that with others to the glory of your Son, Jesus. Ask in His name we pray. Amen.